We've been having lots of fun. If I'd known how much fun this is going to be, I'd quit my day job a long time ago. We've enjoyed it very much. Uh, we will be um, in the school, and uh, we'll have an opportunity in the school for the young people to uh, fill out a contact card. We'll have a drawing for a t-shirt or, or a bag or something like that, and we're giving out some gold pennies. And uh, we had doing an old alchemist trick where we turn pennies into gold, and we'll give out some of those. And I, I understand there's always some young people who don't go to the school here. Uh, maybe you go to a uh, public school or homeschooled or something like that. If you'd like to get in on the drawing and uh, maybe get one of those um, gold pennies, uh, there's some contact cards on the back table there. If you fill those out, just leave them there or give them to my wife or me, and we'll make sure that you're included in that. I don't want to leave anybody out. Uh, for that. What motivates us to travel? This is our encore career after uh, teaching at physics and chemistry at Bob Jones for 39 years, uh, retired in May of 2018. And what motivates us are three things. First of all, as you heard, we like to answer questions. We've talked to many churches and pastors and where they've had maybe uh, uh, somebody from one of the main uh, creation ministries like AIG or CMI or ICR, and they say, well, these, these folks, they come in and they show their slides and they leave, and we don't have an opportunity to ask them questions. And uh, so I find there's a great hunger uh, to have some questions answered. But the young people, they're not so much concerned that you have exactly the right answer. They want to know that you've thought about the question. They want to know that the Bible and science go together and they're not in two separate spheres altogether. And uh, so we'll try to give the best answers we can. Can't guarantee it'll be the right answer, but at least it'll be a reasonable answer, hopefully, to your question. And that helps me if I have those ahead of time. And then I'm concerned about the BioLogos movement that's sweeping our country. Francis Collins is the highest ranking scientist in our government, and he's the head of the NIH, and he was appointed there by President Obama. And he's a born-again Christian by his own testimony. But he is a theistic evolutionist. He believes that, that God used evolution to bring about the world. And he believes in millions and billions of years uh, for that to take place. And so the BioLogos movement has been gaining strength. Uh, they, got a, they got a grant from the Templeton Foundation, $100,000, to produce Sunday school literature to convince Sunday school kids that Adam and Eve were not real people, that they can't have confidence in the first chapters of Genesis, that this is a man named Tim Keller. You may have heard of him. He's a famous Christian author. He passes the Redeemer Church in New York City. He's very much involved in BioLogos. And he says that people like me are evil because we're making young people requiring them to, to believe non-scientific nonsense in order to become Christians. And that we're like the Pharisees of old, keeping people out of heaven by requiring them to believe this non-scientific nonsense that we call creationism. And uh, so there's this battle going on. It may not be going on in your church, but it's going on around the country. And there are many churches uh, that would hold to the BioLogos position, more of them than there are of us. Uh, is that's, as far as that's concerned. So we're battling that. And then I'm concerned as we go around, we find young people, even in the Christian schools, who are 
Uh, the Lord has given them gifts as far as math and science and engineering and health professions. And, and uh, th somehow their parents get into their minds that, all right, it's all right for them to have, you know, go to a Christian school in high school, but when they go to college, then they need to get real science. They need to go to a state university to get uh, the science and engineering that they need. And they, in many cases, don't know that there's an option. They don't know that there's uh, the, the, of the wonderful programs that we uh, have at Bob Jones University, other Christian schools have. And so we're trying to help young people see that they have an option of not having to put up with the evolution every day in their classes, uh, but to be able to uh, get the science and engineering from a world, Christian worldview. Had a student named Courtney Cool, that was her maiden name, and she grew up in, in Texas near Baylor University. And she had to make a decision whether to come to Bob Jones University and study biochemistry or to go to Baylor, uh, which was close to her home. She had a scholarship to go there because she was very bright. And I asked her to write her testimony about how she made that decision. Here's what she wrote. She said, I was faced with the challenge of choosing between either attending Bob Jones University or a secular school near my home in Texas. I had hoped that visiting the schools would help me make my decision. But after seeing the schools, I was highly impressed with the faculty and facilities at both. At Bob Jones University, I appreciated that my classes would be taught by professors, not grad students, and I liked that the professors were able to make time for their students since their primary responsibility is to teach, as opposed to research being the primary responsibility for most professors, which is usually all-consuming. At the secular school, I preferred the research opportunities that were presented to me, Ultimately, the decision came down to what I wanted as my foundation. I knew that I did not want my groundwork in science to be filled with evolution. Evolution permeates into every field in the sciences, and most schools teach evolution as foundational. I wanted a Christian teacher, well-versed in current scientific information, could help me separate what is true from what belongs to the reigning theory of evolution. Being a novice in the field, I did not trust myself to be able to correctly separate the facts and interpretation of facts. Having a Christian professor committed to helping students learn science while keeping the Bible as our ultimate source of truth was more important to me than the research opportunities being presented at the secular school. So my, Courtney came obviously decided to come to Bob Jones and she graduated in biochemistry. She had this idea that you know, what she wanted to do is go get into a corner of a lab and do her research. That's to her what scientists did. Uh, she went on the mission team with us to Australia, and she was disabused of this idea. She opened her eyes to the fact that uh, the Christian life and, and involves people, right? Not sitting in the corner of a lab somewhere. And uh, her, she changed her whole idea about what science and, and working with people was all about. And that was a blessing. We found we have a lot of very intelligent students to, who come to Bob Jones for science and engineering, and many of them go on to Ivy League schools for graduate school. But uh, what we have to do, we found, is you have to keep their hearts warm toward God uh, while you fill their heads full of stuff. Okay? If you just put stuff in their heads, they become proud fools, even as Christians. And so we have to work really hard at that, keeping their hearts warm toward God. And that's what we try to do at Bob Jones University for our students. Anyway, Courtney, um, when she finished, she did get a biochemistry uh, job, and uh, she enjoyed that for a number of years. 
uh, doing research. And then she found out that biochemistry and having a young family and husband didn't work out very well together. Biochemistry experiments tend to die if you don't take care of them. And so she uh, quit that job, and now she's happily teaching high school, Christian high school in Columbia, South Carolina. So she's happy with the decision that she made. So I just want to hold that out, uh, option open to you. We have literature on the table. Feel free to, to take some of that and point young people our way. It's, we've been around for 93 years, and it's taken us 93 years to get where we are as far as our programs are concerned. I think we're really at the top of our game as far as those areas are concerned. Okay, that was the commercial. Let's talk about beauty, the hallmark of God's creation. We're gonna talk about beauty today. My text is in Ecclesiastes chapter three and verse 11. If you turn there with me. Ecclesiastes three and verse 11. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11 says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from beginning to end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could be here and talk about your creative power and wisdom and, Lord, about the beauty that you've created and the hallmark of God's creation. And I pray you'll be of my words. Help me say, not to say anything that's dishonoring to you. I pray you'll be with the ears of those who listen. and Help them, Lord, to be able to understand. And Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will apply what's being said to their hearts uh, so that we can be changed people and can live out what we've learned. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. So how do we know that there is actually eternal significance to everything? Well, this is a fascinating verse here in Ecclesiastes 3.17. It resonates with me as a student of science. The main idea expressed by Solomon is that God's plans is unfathomable. Yet God has also placed within the heart of every, every person a sense of something eternal and a desire to know the eternal significance of what we do. So how do we know that there is actually an eternal significance everything. It tells us here it's because God has made everything fit beautifully in its appropriate time. So join with me in a quest to appreciate the beauty that God's created, understand how that created beauty gives meaning to our existence and helps us understand how everything fits together. So what is beauty according to this verse? Our text defines beauty in terms of two attributes implied in the original language the beautiful things that God has made all fit together in an appropriate way at the proper time. So for example, I could say that a baby's face was beautiful. And I'm implying that it's both symmetrical, that it fits together appropriately, and is appropriate to the age of the child. But what if an 80-year-old had a baby face? Well, that would be grotesque. That wouldn't be beautiful at all. On the other hand, Proverbs 20, 29 says that the beauty of old men is the gray head. So gray hair appears at the appropriate time and fits old men perfectly. 
Another example, if I say that a musical composition is beautiful, I'm implying the melody and the harmony and the rhythm all fit together, that music is appropriate to the occasion. Well, my father was an immigrant from the old country, grew up in Slovakia, and came through Ellis Island. Seventh grade education, he worked as a, as a butcher during his lifetime. And, uh, but he loved Sousa's Marches. So we had these RCA records in our house, Sousa's Marches. And we'd march around those houses, the house with the Sousa's Marches. But you had beautiful music today uh, in your service, but I didn't hear any Sousa's Marches. You didn't have any of those, brother. So why is that? Why, why didn't uh, we have any? Well, because it's not appropriate to the occasion. Can't have everybody marching around the church, okay? So it has to be appropriate to the occasion. Now there are dictionary definitions of beauty. Let's see how they fit with Ecclesiastes 3.11 from Webster's revised unabridged dictionary here. Number one, prevailing style or taste, rage, fashion. That's true that certain clothing styles or haircuts look ridiculous in the wrong era. They had to fit current taste in order to add rather than subtract from beauty. However, the temptation is to believe that beauty is only in the eye of the beholder or in the culturally defined eye of the beholder, and that's just not true. It's not whatever moves us personally. For example, uh, taste for natural beauty and for the arts travels across cultures of great ease. I'm told that Beethoven is especially beloved and adored in Japan. Now, for 23 years, we took mission teams from the university to Australia on mission trips. We used to go for two months every summer. And we made sure that these young people had an opportunity to, to tour the Sydney Opera House, that iconic structure you can probably visualize in your mind's eye. If I asked an architect to prove to me that the Sydney Opera House was, had objective beauty, he would speak to me of patterns and curves and borders and brightness and contrast and purity and smoothness, all features that contribute to beauty that are recognized all over the world. It's not just fashion. The Sydney Opera House has objective beauty uh, because it has many beautiful features that are combined to produce a beautiful overall effect. This beauty is real, it's not an accident. It points to a designer. Number two, a beautiful person, especially a beautiful woman. I'm certainly not gonna deny there are many beautiful women in the Bible. There's Job's daughters and Sarah and Rebecca and Esther and Abigail and Abishag and the Queen of Sheba. Not to mention some handsome men like Joseph and David and Absalom and Daniel. But how do we know a beautiful person when we see one? How do we recognize a beautiful person? Science has the answer, okay? And what they do is similar to what uh, you do in the optometrist's office when they're putting lenses in front of your eyes. They say, does this look better? Does this look better? Does this look better? Does this look better? And they do that, play that game with you, trying to get the right prescription for your glasses. Well, what they did is they took a, a bunch of pictures from people all over the world and they said, is this person more beautiful than this person, this person than this person, this person than this person, and they came up with the most beautiful person in the world based on that. And what we found from that is that beauty can be defined by 
symmetry and proportion. For example, a beautiful person's face is about one and a half times longer than it is wide. Next, people unconsciously look at three segments of the face, from where my hairline used to be to between my eyes, from between my eyes to under my nose, from under my nose to my chin. If those three segments are the same uh, distance, same, same length, then that is considered to me more beautiful. Now, remember, I can see you, even though there's lights in my eyes. So don't, out there, don't go ahead and start doing that, all right? All right? Wait until you're home and look in the mirror, okay, in your bathroom mirror. Don't do it now. I can see you, okay? And uh, there, so they look at the um, um, perfect face, length of an ear is equal to the length of the nose, the width of an eye is equal to the distance between the eyes, and so forth. And they came up with the most beautiful person in the world by the numbers. It turned out to be an 18-year-old shop girl in London who was said to have the most beautiful face in the world by the numbers. And she was very pretty. It's interesting that when God created us, he created Adam and Eve, he made them symmetrical on the outside, even though they were asymmetrical on the inside. Now think about what it would be like if we had jellyfish skin. You could see in our skin, through our skin. You could see our stomach over here, and our heart over here, and our liver over here. That wouldn't be very beautiful, would it? And I should mention that the uh, evolutionists have trouble trying to figure out how you evolve creatures that are symmetrical on the outside, but asymmetrical on the inside. It is without symmetry on the inside. Now, God created us for that beauty, that symmetry on the outside of our bodies. Number three, a particular grace, feature, ornament, or excellence. Anything beautiful as in the beauties of nature. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4 and verse 8. This dictionary definition corresponds very beautifully with Paul's command about what the believer should spend his or her time thinking about in Philippians 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So notice the beautiful things from a Christian perspective are true. That is, they're valid, they're honest, they're reliable, they're honorable or noble, they're worthy of respect, they're right, just, and upright, they're pure, clean, and morally pure, they're lovely, amiable, agreeable, pleasing, of good repute or admirable, what's praiseworthy because it measures up to the highest standards. Now, because we have a free will, we can spend our time thinking about ugly things if we choose to. Uh, unfortunately, we, we do choose to. And I'm often appalled by how much of our entertainment that we look at involves you know, crime and violence and, and warfare and so forth that we find entertaining. Uh, certainly something wrong with that idea. So we can, we can spend our time thinking about ugly things if we choose to, but God will hold us responsible for our thoughts. For example, some people think that the well-proportioned human body created by God is always beautiful and should be put on display. But listen to what it says in Revelation 3.18, 
says, I counsel of thee to buy me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. So over and over again, anytime you find nakedness in the Bible, it's associated with shame, not with beauty. So why is that? Because it doesn't meet the purity test, among others. Number four, an assemblage of graces or properties pleasing to the eye, the ear, the intellect, the aesthetic faculty, or the moral sense. Aesthetics, the study of aesthetics, is concerned with beauty or the appreciation of beauty. And notice how the passage of scripture in Philippians 4.8 and other passages of scripture blend aesthetics with ethics. Now, no one doubts that this book is an ethical book, okay? We all agree on that, but we have to understand that it's ethics in a background, in a, in a surrounded by aesthetics as well. It's everywhere inspired and written in an atmosphere of aesthetics. We can clearly see that from Genesis to Revelation, Adam and Eve make their appearance in a garden where grew every tree that is pleasant to sight. And the last vision of mankind is in an abode in a city whose gates are of pearl and streets are of gold. That's in Revelation 21, 21. So we see, by the way, I should stop here. Do you know what color the streets of gold are in the heavenly city? Do you know what color they are? This is one of those things that ancient people knew uh, because they understood chemistry a lot better than, than we understand today. So they understood that when you took gold, remember the Bible describes it as gold, as clear as glass, as crystal. Okay? So if you take gold and you grind it up into nanoparticles, and you mix it in with glass, you get red. In fact, medieval stained glass makers for churches and so forth, whenever they would depict the blood of Christ on the cross, they would use gold. They'd mix gold in with glass to give that red color. So people understood that back in ancient times. And so I think the readers of the Bible understood when they read that the streets will be of gold, they understood that they'll be red like the blood of Christ to remind us of the fact that it's the blood of Christ that allows us to go to heaven, enjoy the pleasures that God has awaiting for us there. Anyway, that's free. If we go to heaven and you find out that's not the case, all right, just come and tell me, okay? But well, then I'm going to think that that's true, okay? Anyway, that's for free. I didn't, that wasn't planned. Okay, the, we see the image of scripture from beginning to end, a picture of aesthetics wedded to righteousness, the beautiful and the good and the whole range of holy scripture. Now, how should the Bible-believing Christians think about beauty? You know, there's much beauty in this world. We're able to find beauty in many things, a work of art, piece of music, magnificent landscape, and we're drawn to beauty. It can even move us emotionally, but it doesn't always leave us satisfied. Now, we used to go over before our team to Australia, and we found ourselves on the West Coast with a week uh, before we need to go to Australia, and I thought, what should we do with this week? And every creation scientist the place they want to go to most of all is Mount St. Helens. 
because it shows in miniature you know, how quickly the layers can form and so forth because of volcanic activity. So we went to Mount St. Helens, and it was a beautiful cloudless day, which is apparently unusual there. And if you've ever been there, they, they have this uh, little movie they show you of the people who didn't take heed of the warning, and the mountain blew up, and they lost their lives, and so forth, the tragedy. And then they raise the, the screen, and behind, five miles away, you see Mount St. Helens. And I, I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I just wanted to drink in that beauty. I never wanted to forget that beauty. And yet, the next day, I wanted to see something else that was beautiful. So we went to Multnomah Falls there in the gorge, uh, which was carved out by an Ice Age lake that broke. And uh, that was beautiful. And then I wanted to see some more beauty the next day. So we went to the Oregon coast, and we saw the beauty there, the waves crashing on the rocks. And then we wanted to see the next day some more beauty. So we went to Mount Hood and saw the beautiful snow-capped mountain. And so what I'm saying is that we see this beauty, and we enjoy that beauty, but it doesn't leave us satisfied. We always want something else more beautiful after that. We can learn a lot from King David about how to think about beauty. David was surrounded by, beautiful, by beauty. He was surrounded by beautiful women, too many beautiful women. Beautiful art, beautiful music, beautiful poetry, the beauties of nature. And here's what David says in Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What he's saying is that the greatest gift that God could give him would be the privilege of spending his time contemplating and reflecting on the wonderful features of his God. David understood that the beauty with which he was surrounded on earth was just reflected beauty. Reflected beauty. And he understood this, there's a, such a thing as source beauty. The beauty in this world never brings us lasting satisfaction only divine beauty can. So what is this source beauty? C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory, and I quote, he says, we do not want to merely see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Now, I don't completely understand that because we're not there yet. Obviously, we're not in heaven with the Lord yet. But I think I understand a little bit from what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, 2. He said, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It does not appear as, to, as yet what we will be, but we know that when we, he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him just as he is. That is, we become part of that beauty in that day. Uh, we're not just looking at it, we're actually a part of it, according to God's word. But even with our imperfect, partial understanding, one fact is crystal clear, Jesus Christ is the ultimate source of beauty. Now, how do evolutionists explain the origin of beauty? According to Darwin and his followers, it all boils down to sexual selection. The example Darwin himself used was the evolution of beauty, for the evolution of beauty 
was the peacock tail, which developed the way it did, according to him, in order to impress the peahen. It's a big jump, you have to agree, to get from peacocks to natural beauty and art and literature and music, but somehow they manage it because they don't have any other theory to work with. And peacock's feathers really are amazingly designed. There's a couple peacocks walking around out there, and so I plucked some of their feathers this morning. And uh, so we got some peacock feathers here. And they really are amazingly designed. It's interesting, the peacock feathers don't have any color of their own. Okay, the colors that you see there are actually uh, because of what we call thin film interference. That they're constructed of layers of keratin of different thicknesses that correspond to different wavelengths of light. It's kind of like when you put a, a drop of oil on a, on a puddle of water and you see the rainbow colors there, that's thin film interference. Okay, And so we get these these beautiful colors uh, because of thin film interference. Okay? And it has, it's not willy-nilly, it's actually according to a certain pattern that gives a pleasing overall effect. Not only that, it takes a lot of genetic information to do something like this. I mean, there's no reason to have all this beauty other than the fact that uh, God likes things that are beautiful. Okay? He created things that are, are beautiful. Now, it's interesting that, that uh, I think that peacock feathers are beautiful, and I'm not a peahen, obviously, okay? So why should, I, should, why should I think that peacock feathers are beautiful, not being a peahen? And uh, there's no explanation. I mean, why should we have any beauty at all? Why should we be able to see in color? Now, I grew up in the 50s, and everything was black and white back then. Okay, if you doubt me, just look at the pictures back then. You'll see everything was black and white. Okay, and then suddenly we had color. Okay, we got color in the 60s. Okay, but why should we be able to see beauty? Why should we be able to see color? Uh, it's because God wants us to enjoy that beauty. Now, Charles Darwin, he understood. He lived in a pious age. He lit. He know. And when he wrote his books, he tried to to you know, give a nod toward God and so forth. But he actually was an atheist, and he actually knew what he was doing. And in his private conversations, uh, he actually showed his true colors. And here's a letter he wrote to uh, Asa Gray in April 3rd, 1860. He said, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick. Anybody felt sick out there when I was waving those peacock feathers around? I don't think so. So why would, why would Darwin say that? Why would he say that a peacock feather made him sick? Because he understood the par powerful argument that the peacock feather made for the creator God. He under, understood that it undermined his own arguments of evolution. So what is this, this added beauty? Uh, it's easy for a creation scientist like me to get so caught up in the evidences of God's creation that I miss the obvious, that God made his handiwork so clear even a child can see it. The beauty of his work is inescapable. It's an undeniable witness to his existence. And the deeper we explore in our world, the more beauty we find. So understanding creation isn't just about explaining matter or complex moving parts of, like we did this morning in Sunday school. 
but it's, it involves this added beauty. Experience tells us that beauty doesn't come about by accident. It, it doesn't offer any obvious survival advantage. Um, that the many existing natural laws we have, we talk about the second law of thermodynamics, actually promote decay, deterioration. God, not God only created the earth's beauty, but he sustains it. Think about what he says, and in, in Jesus says in Matthew 6, 29, he pointed out that, that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like the lilies of the field. Atheist Steve Jones once wrote that evolution does its job and no more, and that's true. That's why added beauty uh, in creation is evidence for the creator. Only a designer can add beauty for the sake of beauty. Good example of this can be seen in the color of things. Did you notice how God made the color of the earth to contrast with the color of the sky? How strange if both the earth and the sky were blue, or both the earth and the sky were green. Okay, that wouldn't be beautiful at all. You know, sometimes I talk to uh, grade school children, primary children, and I say, well, you know, ask them to have some questions for me about science and so forth, and they think really hard, and they say, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? And those are actually very difficult questions to explain to young people at that age. I could tell them about how God created the air molecules just the right size to get the Rayleigh light scattering to scatter the blue in the sky, or I could talk about the, you know, the, the photosynthetic a process and how it's a quantum mechanical effect and it absorbs uh, light from both the red and the blue spectra, leaves the green left over and so forth. Doesn't work too well with primary age children. But what they can understand is that there is a God who created the color scheme of creation. It's as if an expert in art had coordinated and planted the colors with great care and attention, which of course he did. According to naturalistic views, it's only a coincidence that that color scheme is so pleasing to mankind. But naturalism has a big problem. There's no random mechanism that could produce such a color scheme and no reason we should even see those colors in the first place. So what are the two things that are hallmarks of God's creative style? I understand that beautiful um, Beauty is not just beauty of things that we see, but they're also something we would say as beautiful, that are beautiful ideas. Symmetry, a love of harmony and balance and proportion. Economy, satisfaction in producing an abundance of effects from very limited means. I was talking to a man this morning after Sunday school, and he's studied mathematics. You ask any serious mathematics, he'll tell you that one of the reasons they became a mathematician is because mathematics is beautiful and can even be elegant. Now, why is it that mathematics so perfectly describes science, describes the natural world? Uh, why is it that when we tell young people, or the young people who want to study science, we tell them, well, really do well in math. You know, it's very important you do well in math. Why is that? Because math is the language of science. But there's no reason that should be the case. There's no, there's no um, you know, secular reason. There's no natural reason why mathematics should be the language of science. It's only because the same God who created 
mathematics created the natural world, that they go, they go together. The mathematical ideas of beauty and symmetry extend to sound waves and music. Why do tones whose frequencies are in the ratio of small whole numbers sound good together? Why is there the tones that are slightly off, like C and C sharp? Why do they produce a painful sound? My second daughter, uh, Katie, who now is married to a pastor in Australia, uh, she decided she wanted to play the piccolo. And so we had a lot of painful sounds in our home <laughs> when she was learning how to play the piccolo. So belief in creation increases a person's appreciation of beauty because that person knows that beauty is the work of a loving creator. Here's what hymn writer George Wade Robinson said of beauty. He said, heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green, something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs or flow, flowers with deeper beauty shine, since I know, as now I know, I am his, and he is mine. So what is the message of beauty in creation? As we've already seen, the beauty of creation clearly reveals a creator to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Isaac Watts wrote, there's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. The beauty of creation also shows that God cares deeply for man. I reference that passage in Matthew 6, where it talks about why take ye thought for raiment. Consider the lilies of the field. And the idea is that if man is the pinnacle of God's creation, and he cares for the lilies of the field, he cares for the animal kingdom so much, he knows about all the sparrows and the hairs on our head and so forth, how much care does he take for us? who are made in his image. He gives us his detailed care. He takes care of every detail of our needs. And then the beauty of creation can remind us of a beautiful promise in scripture, that God takes delight in his children and beautifies them with salvation. Psalm 149 verse four says, for the Lord taketh pleasure in his people, he will beautify the meek with salvation. So in the same way that a pearl starts off as a piece of grit, gets transformed into a beautiful pearl by being clothed with layers of nacre, so God transforms unclean sinners into a beautiful new creation by clothing them in the righteousness of Christ. Any man being Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's interesting, with all this beauty, you think that God would have used beauty to bring us salvation, but he didn't. God used ugliness to bring us salvation. Isaiah 52, 14, as many as were astonished at thee, speaking of Christ, his visage was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Isaiah 53, 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant as a root of, out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness when we shall see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. I know some people wear beautiful gold or silver crosses as jewelry. And my purpose today is not to talk about religious jewelry. Uh, but there's nothing at all beautiful about a crucifixion with its blood and its sweat and its bones out of joint, victims gasping for breath, begging for water with faces distorted in agony. It's hard for us, after 
all these centuries of, during which the cross has been used as a sacred symbol to realize the unspeakable horror and loathing which the very mention of the thought of the cross provoked in Paul's day. Even the Latin word crux was unmentionable in polite Roman society. But despite that, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.14. He says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The glory was not in the cross itself. I have unfortunately seen pictures of Syrian Christians crucified by ISIS. And I've seen pictures of Armenian Christians crucified by the Turks. Truly one of the most horrible ways of slow death devised by the black heart of sinful men. But Paul boasted only in the cross of Christ. The work of Christ for him, that's all he took pride in. The cross is a symbol of shame. Because of the cross, the world system had lost its appeal to Paul, and he had lost his appeal to the world. And that is how the ugliest thing in the world became the most beautiful thing, at least in the eyes of Christians. And that brings us to another ugly thing that Christ makes beautiful, and that is our feet. Romans 10, 15, How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And I believe there are many people out here in the congregation I'm looking at to have beautiful feet. Keep your shoes on, but you have beautiful feet. There's an unmatched beauty in one person sharing the good news of salvation with another, no matter how haltingly. When you tell someone the, the good news of salvation and the cross of Christ, the ground you're standing on with your beautiful feet becomes holy ground. In the end, all the beauty in heaven and earth point to our beautiful Savior. Do you know him? Is he at all beautiful to you? When I talked about how the ugliest thing became the most beautiful thing, did that resonate with you? Did, that, did you understand that in your heart, what I was talking about? If not, I'm sure there's, there are plenty here who would love to tell you why we believe that Jesus, Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ is the most beautiful thing in the whole world because it brought us our salvation. Thank you very much.